they show up, they talk, they dance, they they interact with each other. So so they they kind of have a little bit of a voice, very similar to a Greek chorus between scenes where they say these, you know, long rhyming couplet things. And it's like, OK, cool. Nice. Thanks, <laughs> chorus. Welcome back, everybody. It's good to be back here on No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Yes, it's good to be back with all of you out there in podcast land. We're excited to jump into another great script this week, a new playwright to the podcast. It's always exciting to have a new playwright. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's one of the great joys of doing a podcast like this is the discovery of new playwrights, new plays. And and Karen Zacharias is not a new playwright by any right. stretch of the contemporary scene. She's prolific. She's had plays all over the country for a long time now. But she's new to our podcast. And to get to have conversations on uh, people who have been contributing to the American stage and that we haven't had a chance to look at and to discuss is a real privilege. We love coming back to playwrights, but for me, I really love getting to do playwrights we haven't done before. Yeah, and especially it opens the door to have like really contemporary conversations like the play that we're talking about today. Uh, Native Gardens by uh, Karen Zacharias is just a great play that is right in our cultural moment, um, uh, addresses a lot of kind of the, 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 the underlying feels that are happening right now in terms of our like public discourse, and uh, but but also just like is a great comedic um, uh, play that like makes you laugh at at some of the like the uh, intricacies of neighborly relationships. Yeah, it's it's a play from 2016, and yet it really, really still feels fresh. I mean, it it lacks any reference to COVID, and that's going to be a problem for <laughs> right. as we've been examining for years now. It's going to be a little <laughs> bit of a problem for any of those plays before COVID that want to have a contemporary moment after COVID. So lacking that, it does still, I mean, the issues in the play are so fresh, so relevant. The comedy works so well still. I got introduced to this this play because the professional house in Arkansas, where I was living at the time, produced Native Gardens as part of their season. Theater Squared is the theater in Fayetteville, Arkansas. They do a lot of great stuff, and they're doing a lot of really great plays there, including this play, and I'll discuss kind of when that happened in the timeline of this play, because it's part of the story of this play is a really special kind of moment it had at regional houses in America. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 been a kind of a set of of uh, plays. I, I think I watched an interview that that uh, talked about how many of her plays are done at the uh, I believe the Denver Repertory Theater. Um, yeah, and, the Denver uh, Center for the Performing Arts. She is one of the only living playwrights to have a play happen in all of the theaters of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm, I'm excited to finally kind of jump into it. This is a this is a great play that like 
um, kind of leans into a lot of those themes. Um, and so, so I'm excited to get to talk about it. Um, uh, I do want to take a second though, uh, before we start our conversation and, uh, thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you so much for helping out the show and being a part of the no script community. Um, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you've heard this, this business before. We love getting to do the show. We love getting to have these conversations with each other and with all of you out there in the podcast Ville. Um, and our patrons... with, with Podcastville. I'm just going to keep riffing <laughs> the on the name of it. First time in nine seasons, it's not Podcast Land. It's a Ville now. We've, we've shrunk it down to just a Ville. And <laughs> but thank you all so much, over all of you patrons over at patreoncom podcast for making this show possible. If you're looking for a way to help out the show, it's a great way to do that. You can uh, sign up for as little as $1 a month, $12 over the course of a year. We have a number of different tiers over there. One of them being, I believe we call it the Playwright tier, which is a $5 a month tier. And for that uh, tier, you get uh, a producer credit on a, on, a, on an episode in the season. And today we have the chance to get to do that. Brock Burick joined uh, this last month as uh, at that Playwright tier of patronship. So thank you, Brock, for being a part of the show for being a part of making sure that we get to keep having these unscripted conversations about theater's best scripts. Thanks so much. And if you are looking for a way to uh, kind of join the community, be a part of the conversations, get early access to the scripts that we're doing and access to patron only posts, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast, and we will see you over there. Yeah. Big, big thank you to our supporters, especially to you, Brock. Thanks for joining the team over there at Patreon. And now... Back to the script. Here we go. Man, I feel like we moved to recording in the mornings. This is just like a peek behind the curtain of, <laughs> of our, our recording schedule. And like, I just feel like my voice has been so much deeper for the past it's couple. True. It's just like, I've got this like back to the script <laughs> register. A little more gravel. Early yeah. in the morning around here. And Jackson and I are in very different time zones, even more now than we used to be. It's and true. so it's like, the, 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 it gets off. So I've still got my deep morning voice going on right now. <laughs> All that to say, <laughs> uh, Karen Zagarias is a new playwright to the podcast, so we will give our uh, conventional, regular, sort of brief introduction to her. And I don't know that we've said this yet, but we there's always a chance that we say something wrong in these, right? Because we're just like looking up as much as we can find about these people and about the life of the plays. We right. can never promise 100% accuracy, but we try to tell the story as best we can find it from the kind of research that we do. If there's ever a playwright out there who's like, that was wrong. Don't that's that's just just send us a message and just we'll let us know. the next yeah. episode we record we'll just we'll post a little correction to it right, because right. we want to get things right and that's Absolutely. not to say that we feel badly about a recent one I was just thinking about that as I put together this like <laughs> mishmash story from different researchers that I could find about uh, Karen Zacharias career and I was like you know th I think this is probably <laughs> close to right but I you know I can't promise that so right. it's, it's, Karen it's Zacharias if I get this wrong. Let us know. <laughs> right. It's, it's one of the dangers of being an unscripted podcast. Ah. We just kind of we do like a little bit of research ahead of time and then we run with it. Yep. <laughs> All right. So Karen Zagreus, born in Mexico. She now lives in Washington, D.C. And for a prolific playwright, she being in D.C., that does limit her access to New York City stages uh, somewhat. She actually gives an interesting TED talk kind of on that subject and on her 
um, a non-conventional career path as a playwright. She's a BA from Stanford University. She's a master's degree from Boston University. Um, and beyond being a playwright, and I'll talk about her playwriting career here in just a second, one of the things that she's really known for is that founding the Young Playwrights Theater. And this is an organization where they teach playwriting to local school kids in the public schools in D.C. And then the Young Playwrights Theater's mission is to produce those plays. So a lot of times you'll see playwrights found a theater that produces their plays. It's just one of those ways that playwrights get themselves started is they say, I want my plays to be done, so I'm going to found a theater that does my plays. I mean, it's, it's, it's courageous and it's admirable, and boy, it's a lot of work, as anybody who's done any theater founding can tell you. Um, and, and so she founded a theater, and it, they don't produce any of her plays. <laughs> These are playwrights for, uh, uh, for that they've been working with and training in the public schools in Washington, D.C. She was also the playwright in residence for a time at Arena Stage in D.C., and she taught playwriting at Georgetown University for a while. Um, she, uh, one of her big plays that's uh, very popular, it's, it's got a bunch of extensions, it's, it's called the Book Club, Book Club Play. You may have heard of that one out there. In 2018 and 2019, and you'll see this reflected when we talk specifically about the play, uh, she was fifth on the American theater's top produced playwrights in America um, for that particular season. So she's she's prolific in her reach, especially at the especially at the regional professional theater scene. That's kind of where she's had a lot of success across America. Um, she has been commissioned by a number of great organizations: Arena Stage, Cincinnati Playhouse. House, Ford's Theater, Adventure Theater, First Stage. She's had plays produced. This is just going to be a list of theaters, and these are some of the premier professional theaters out there. The John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, the Arena Stage, Goodman, the Roundhouse Theater, the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. We discussed that in the intro. Imagination Stage, the Berkshire Theater, the Gala Hispanic Theater, South Coast Rep, La Jolla Playhouse, Cleveland Playhouse, San Jose Repertory Theater. The list goes on and on and on. You can get a sense of the scope of her work and its reach out there. Um, she's won the New Voices Award, a 2010 Steinberg Citation for Best New Play, um, a National Francesca Primus Award, the New Voices Award, the National Latino Play Award. She was a finalist for the Susan Blackburn Prize. We've brought that award up a number of times on this podcast. And she won the Helen Hayes Award for Outstanding New Play. So well-lauded, a huge reach, and a really unique mission with this young playwright theater in DC. Additionally, she also writes the books for like musicals for kids. That's part of her career. Her career is fascinating. That's that's just a very brief overview of it. I actually encourage you look up the Ted Broadway talk that she does um, where she sort of talks about her non-traditional path and from that non-traditional path, a discovery of what theater can do, sort of the power of theater to listen, uh, the power of theater as a communal art, as a communal act, like to sort of discover discovering that you're not alone in the art form of theater. Really cool. She's an awesome person. Uh, glad to be finally doing a play of hers. Um, this play came from 
uh, Native Gardens. It came from a dinner party that she was attending. Um, she she had been commissioned to write a play by the Cincinnati Playhouse. Um, and so she was looking for ideas for what to write this new play about. She was at a dinner party, and basically the story is friends started talking about uh, stories from their real lives about basically squabbles that they had gotten into with their neighbors. Um, and this, as she found this sort of strange combination in these stories of recognizing, especially in, in the, in the past tense, I guess, in, in hindsight, that the stories were sort of absurd. The squabbles were over things that in hindsight look sort of strange and funny and absurd. And yet the stories were genuinely very stressful to the people involved. They were very high tension. They were very high combativeness. And so she sort of became interested, at least my understanding is in this combination of how absurd, absurd the, the fights really are and at the same time how genuinely stressful and how empathetic you can be for people who are in the middle of these strange situations these disputes with neighbors and so she writes native gardens it premieres at the cincinnati playhouse in 2016 it plays at the guthrie theater in 2017 the victory garden theater in chicago in 2017 and then it hits its full beautiful stride and it is on the list of the top 10 most produced plays in america typically this sets aside all of the shakespeare's of course so outside of shakespeare the top 10 most produced plays in the 2018 2019 american theater scene that's of course the same year where she hits fifth on that list so this is her big moment 2018 2019 she has a play that really sweeps the nation it's at the denver center for the performing arts that's the year it's at theater squared where i was living in arkansas it has a three-way co-production uh so production that's built and and directed and acted in one place and then kind of uh, has uh, residencies in these other places uh syracuse stage jiva center in rochester and the portland center stage sort of we're all in on this three-part co-production production the portland stage in maine does it in 2020 and and at this point i'm just naming random theaters because the list <laughs> is so long coachella valley rep in in early of this year in 2022 and then something we don't usually do that i think is interesting because i happen to find this information this place actually has two productions scheduled that uh, if you happen to live in these areas you can check out there is hey. a uh, production scheduled for 2022 uh, october so uh next month here uh in the Langhorn Players in Pennsylvania. If you're around that area, check it out. And the City Theater in Pittsburgh. So two Pennsylvania shows uh, scheduled for spring of 2023. So you are highly encouraged by this podcast to check out those productions <laughs> if you're in the area. Yeah, don't miss it. I, I, I unfortunately, as I was doing the research for, for this one, realized it was in a regional house very close to me. And I was like, dang it, that was back in February. No way I can fix it now. But go see it if you have the chance to see it or read it and then join in the conversation. So we're going to jump into the uh, just brief synopsis of the play. The uh, synopsis is is like there is this is a, a fairly intricate uh, uh, set of characters and and uh, and uh, 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 in intricately tied um motives and stuff um but but the plot is is a pretty straightforward plot we take uh, place with these uh, or we we join these characters in one week of their lives uh, the play is set um a couple a couple of lines directly reference Washington DC though really any uh, medium to large city in America could take on a lot of the the traits of this town as long as there's like a historic district in the town uh, you can kind of get the gist of what's going on yeah, um, I the suppose play you, you would have to change the script 
script to some degree to move the setting because yeah. as you mentioned it does appear a couple of times in the play these references to dc it's also worth noting that karen zacharias or Zachari- zacharias lives in uh dc and so yeah. there's like a certain certainly a certain familiarity um especially as jackson will describe here these sort of disputes over historic neighborhoods and the kinds yeah. of the kinds of people that live there yeah, definitely. And the sort of connections that they have, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so yeah, it takes place in the backyards of two neighbors. One set of neighbors, um, Tanya and Pablo, are moving there, uh, are freshly moving there. They just bought their place, um, and, the, and they're moving in, kind of getting to know it. Their backyard is in somewhat of disrepair. The previous owners um, kind of let it go a little bit. There's a big oak tree in it, um, and uh, they've been renting it out to, like, Georgetown students. <laughs> for a while so it's just it's just kind of fallen into dis- disrepair a little bit as they come into ownership of the property um their neighbors are virginia and frank and their garden or their backyard is a garden and it's immaculate frank is like in the running every year for this like community award about gardening um that that he's trying to uh get every year um, and so when Tanya and Pablo move in, uh, they they kind of uh, take stock of their area. They're moving in for uh, Pablo's job. He just got a job at a at a firm. He's a lawyer and an attorney. In fact, I'll just read their character descriptions real quick. Tanya is early thirties, smart, likable, positive, passionate, highly energized, pregnant PhD candidate, and gardener. And then Pablo is early 30s, smart, likable, ambitious, savvy young attorney. Um, so they moved into town for Pablo's job. And he's just starting at this firm. So he comes uh, back home. Uh, First of all, Virginia and Frank uh, kind of give them a housewarming gift of, of wine and chocolate and just like, let them know like they share they share a uh, a chain link fence that has Ivy growing over it. Um, And so they're like very close neighbors. Um, but right away, Pablo kind of has this event at work um, where he is, he feels like he's being tested by one of the partners, um, and he uh, winds up offering to host the entire firm at their house for a party at the end of the week on Saturday. We pick up st- the action of the play on Monday. And so he comes home and he says, sorry, I know that you are finishing your PhD work, and uh, and and also you are very pregnant, like eight months pregnant, um, but we got to throw a party in our brand new house that we have boxes all over the place on Saturday for 30 people, 30 lawyers, uh, including the, the one of the firm owners. So um, so they start to work and try to imagine what to do about that. And Tanya has a lot of dreams for their back garden space. She wants it to be a native garden filled with native pr- plants and indigenous uh, plants to the area and kind of take out all of these invasive species and stuff. Notably, their neighbor, Frank, has a lot of invasive species in his garden. Um, but it's a beautiful garden. It's beautifully manicured. He uses a lot of uh, kind of products and things like that to keep it keep it going but the main thing that they land on is uh pablo notices that the the fence the chain link fence that has like ivy growing over it their shared fence in their mind um is 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 rather ugly and he wants to take it out and try to put in a wooden fence um something that looks a little bit more um a professional looking and so they decide to go over to their neighbors and ask them um if they're okay with them taking out the fence and putting in a new one before the weekend they go over to the house and there is uh, uh, they have they have dinner with uh, Frank and Virginia. Frank and Virginia are uh, I'll read their character descriptions real quick too. Virginia is sixty to mid seventies, smart, likable, assertive, direct, no nonsense engineer. And then Frank is sixty to mid seventies, smart, likable, excitable, caring, detail oriented federal employee and gardener. 
and they both uh, kind of invite them over. They express their excitement that they're in the area. There's some kind of like, I, I don't know exactly the right term, but just like you begin to start to kind of sense some of the uh, differences in their, uh, in their, um, in their ethnicity coming out, some subtle racism from uh, Virginia and Frank begins to come out and some of their conversation turns to what is it like to be um, a United Statesian? Um, we it, we learn more about uh, each of the characters' uh, ethnicity and heritage. Uh, Tanya is from New Mexico uh, of Latinx descent. Pablo is, is Chilean and also was a kind of a rich um, uh, kid growing up but ended up leaving his riches and his father disowned him uh, for, for him to marry Tanya. We have Virginia, who is uh, 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 born or raised in Buffalo, New York, but of Polish descent and heritage and holds on to that um, identity. And uh, Frank, who is a wealthy New England family. So you kind of begin to see the sort of um, uh, shoulder rubbing and uh, some some inappropriate remarks, especially from Frank, um, as the conversation goes on. And the other thing that develops in that conversation is uh, the differences in Tanya and Frank's gardening style. Tanya uh, pretty pretty uh, decisively um, uh, says that it's bad to be gardening in the in the way that Frank is, even though it's beautiful. And uh, Frank uh, says, "Well, you're basically planting weeds over there, so and you're going to be bringing a bunch of bugs and stuff. That's not what this garden is for." And so you start to get some friction uh, between them on that. But ultimately. They discover that Frank has no attachment to the fence, that it was put in by the previous owners, and he's happy to have them remove it and put in a better fence. He actually thinks it'll be better for him. It'll likely help his chances of winning this gardening um, uh, event. However, what is discovered uh, as uh, Pablo goes about the business of bringing in a contractor for the fence is that their property line has been infringed on. The fence, in fact, uh, does not mark their property line, and in fact, their property line extends to beyond Frank's garden. Um, in fact, runs almost like straight through Frank's garden, an extra two feet, but it amounts to about 86 square feet, which is like $30,000 in terms of its market value. And so uh, uh, Pablo and Tanya start the process of uh, really, Tanya tries to start the process gently of letting them know that, hey, we're going to be moving the fence into the middle of your garden. But Pablo then comes over and says, no, 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 we're moving it and you got to just be okay with it, which starts like a bit of a bit of a spiral for these two couples. Um, uh, it spirals into some pretty harsh words over a couple days. Um, there's a uh, back and forth about uh, whether or not uh, Virginia and Frank can claim squatters rights because they've had this piece of land for about as long as they can remember. The previous tenant put the fence in the wrong place and so they've been cultivating it. They have plants in it, so they have money into it. Um, but then uh, Tanya and Pablo actually own it and they want to use it now. And they have, and not only that, but they have the timer of uh, the fence go of the party on Saturday that the fence must go in by then in order for this kind of uh, needing to look fancy party to occur they have to they have to get it in by, get it in by then this devolves into a couple of pretty tense scenes pretty comedic scenes but pretty tense scenes where uh, both sides accuse the other of racist behavior um, both sides accuse the other of of, uh, of being the privileged one or being the one who uh, uh, has the power and is thus kind of uh, putting putting their heel heel on the neck of the other etc um, and and eventually it builds to a pretty climactic uh, 
battle essentially where the two of them the two families are uh the, the well well uh virginia and frank managed to get some sort of order against tanya and pablo that makes their contractors stop working on the fence so tanya and pablo go to work on the fence themselves and that develops into a full-out fight which involves amongst other things uh uh, uh tanya going over to the garden and pulling up flowers and throwing them at frank it involves virginia taking a chainsaw and threatening to cut down the oak tree um, all of this kind of builds into a big climactic fight, and there's a bit of a uh, baby ex madre deus ex machina of suddenly <laughs> um, Tanya's baby uh, is coming. And uh, suddenly the two couples have to drop everything they're doing and uh, take care of Tanya, who is suddenly going into labor. And then we have a kind of a short denouement afterwards of like a year later... They've worked out some of their differences. There's now uh, kind of a native plant barrier instead of the fence uh, that, that stretches across their yard. That that follows the property line, um, uh, but but uh, is in fact a, a beautiful fence uh, or divider that Frank can use for his gardening, and they kind of reflect on uh, the degree to which they went to to try to resist each other <laughs> in that moment, and and the sort of. Uh, Peace that that has developed uh, after a year, a pretty significant year jump um, in timeline. Uh, that that they're now able to live uh, peacefully together now that this uh, uh, that this dispute has been resolved. Yeah, good summary. And it's it's th this play is so as as a lot of comedies are. It's sort of uh, character driven, right? There's not a lot of single events that drive the action forward. Like there's sort of broad uh, 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 comedy categories where comedy has a much more event sequence. This happens and then this happens and then this happens and the characters are just sort of pulled along in a hilarious slew of events. And then you get uh, comedies that are more character based, really famous examples. Uh, a lot of the Neil Simon stuff is very character based comedy, right? And this is certainly lives in that world of what is going on is these characters, these sort of big personality type people in conflict. And so the conflict is derived, the, the, the plot rather, is derived from the conflict between them and the things that they actively try to do to each other and work on each other to achieve their goals. I'm hoping that the conversation we can focus on just some of the really cool writing stuff that Karen Zacharias has done here because in all honesty, uh, there's not a lot of, of, of subtlety, I don't think, to the character motivations and plots. They, they sort of are laid out as they are in the script. The themes have a lot of really engaging stuff going on that I think is worth talking about. But there's a couple of features of the way she's crafted this show that I think are so, so interesting. The first comes from those character notes at the beginning. All four characters have a, have the same uh, pair of adjectives layered on them that I, that I just think is really smart at the beginning of this high tension, high conflict play to just note for the production team. And that's that all four characters have the adjectives smart, likable as sort of the beginning of their character description. Smart, likable. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's sort of like setting the tone of 
these these are these are people that you would like if you met. Um, these are people that like each other as they meet, even. And yet there are these like little things that eventually uh, kind of cause them to miss each other or say a lot of the like uh, tension building moments are when someone says something that the other one takes in a different way and claims that the other one meant it that way. The other one then says, "No, I didn't mean it that way. Why are you taking it that way? Are are man? You are just so annoying all the time. You people are so annoying all the time." And they're like, "Oh, us people," and you just kind of see that likability slowly fade away, or sometimes rapidly fade away, as they kind of engage in in neighborly conflict, which is something that Zacharias is is kind of playing with. That like she she says in an interview that like property, taste, and culture are the three things that neighbors fight about the most. And neighbors can even in this case be a pretty broad category as you look at like how we all fight about things as as national neighbors or as as uh, neighborhood neighbors. You have uh, the no matter how likable you are, these sorts of things eke their way into the relationship and become passionate debates. Yeah, there's uh, an interesting sort of story about the life of this play is that obviously this is a play from 2016, right? And so as this play is coming into its own, you also are going through the Trump presidency. And one of the major features of the Trump presidency is like this border wall thing between Mm -hmm. neighbors and and Karen Zacharias and and various cast members and, and directors and such that you can watch talk about this play, talk about the way that this play has... Um, to, to some degree, truthfully, has has had changes inserted into it because of that dispute going on. Zacharias has added lines, changed some minor things here and there so that there are more overt references to that going on. But I do think those two adjectives given to the characters are important, especially in light of that, but also just in light of the type of play it is. Like, this is not a play where there are obvious villains, Right. And, and and so especially as you have like a, a thing like a border dispute going on and you have a leader of a country saying ridiculous things all at the same time, blah, blah, blah. This this type of play, you've got like a right, like a young uh, non-white couple versus this rich old couple. There are some tend there could be some tendency to villainize one group or the other and to make this a story of an innocent victim versus an all-encompassing villain. Um, and, and there are so many subtle things that Karen Zacharias has done throughout the play to undo that, but it all starts with this description at the beginning. All four of these people are very intelligent and they're friendly and you would like them if you met them, like you said, and they want to be liked by each other. They don't have malintent in their heart. In fact, of uh, the, the two, Frank and Virginia, uh, you know, seem to uh, at least honestly recognize, at least in the beginning, when you're willing to be reasonable before the fight escalates, that there's clearly been some sort of mistake. And at the beginning, when everybody's reasonable, there's not really a question of like, well, this is a, we're going to try to keep this property. Clearly, there was a mistake. They feel bad about the mistake. They want some time to look at the documents and make sure it's accurate, and then they're going to come to a solution. Now, that's, again, I'll say for the third time here, that's before things escalate. Right. <laughs> and the escalation <laughs> of smart, likable, reasonable people into people who are fighting with acorns and hoses in the right. middle of the night, like that is the escalation of this play. That's the comedy. That's the story. 
Yeah, which is which is pretty masterfully wielded with a, a timeline, right? There's timelines on both sides of the equation because normally, like uh, the the sort of the, without a pressure cooker, there you can believe that both of these people who have a value for being kind and being likable would have resolved this, you know, just fine. However, yes. the two the two pressure cookers in this is this party coming on Saturday that that has to look good in order for Pablo to potentially be on set on the path to make partner. And the thing that I didn't I, that I didn't mention in my synopsis that is an integral part of Virginia and Frank's storyline is the neighborhood uh, garden judging event is just after that. It's days away, but after the party. So uh, so Frank also has this like there's a moment early on when Frank is like, let's just can we just wait till after the after the the judging happens for this neighborhood garden event and then we'll work it all out. But if we could just wait till after that. Um, then I have a chance of winning this 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 event. Um, so both sides have this sort of like we there's there's a time there's a time crunch for uh, Pablo and Tanya, and then uh, a, a time whatever the opposite of that is an opportunity of of that is arriving that is going to be interrupted if if the time crunch is honored. So because those two things are opposed the kindness fades away and the desire to uh, be likable fades away as the uh, kind of bonds or the, um, the, the, the values uh, come against each other. Right. So if you're talking like, uh, you know, uh, writing class 101, not just playwriting, right. this is true of all stories, right? You're talking about urgency. There are there. She has done something in this play to create urgency, and in that masterful way, from, a, from such a long career and and being so good at what she does, she has made that urgency such that it it creates conflict in and of itself. The barbecue is on Saturday, so they want to have the yard set up and nice, and the fence put in on the correct property line by Saturday. The garden judging competition is on Sunday. He'd like to leave the garden as it is, so that he has a chance at winning the garden competition, both of those things can't happen. There is no way to proceed forward where both of those things happen. Yep. And because of that, because of that, ur the urgency is in itself a part of the conflict, and it's it's just fantastic. And then beyond the urgency, there's also these, there's a lot of high stakes, right? And, and so if you're looking for like, I, I just want to play for playwriting 101 at university that I can show a really strong use of urgency and stakes. This is a great play for that because the stakes are high and you don't necessarily have to, as the audience share the stakes. I don't care about a gardening competition, but it's clear that the character does, that it matters to him. That's a longstanding thing that matters to him. Pablo having immigrated into the country feels like a foreigner at his job, has an opportunity to impress his, his, his colleagues and believes that this could potentially give him the leg up he needs to be able to make partner. And so there's high stakes there. And then there's more stakes that develop across the course of the play. It becomes an issue of whether this couple, this non-white couple can have access to the American dream. It becomes an issue of years of hard work put in by Virginia and Frank that's just going to be trampled and changed in a way they don't want. It becomes an issue of like 40 grand. That's how they do the calculations, Tanya and Pablo, to determine that that little strip of land based on what they paid for the whole property is worth 40 grand. I mean, the stakes just accumulate and accumulate to justify these characters being in, in a place where they do the kinds of wild things they do by the end of the yeah, yeah. The the other kind of uh, uh, piece that is is a kind of a subtle undercurrent that that builds is the difference in 
uh, Tanya and Frank's gardening styles um, and how uh, they are kind of opposed. Uh, you have the oak tree that is uh, uh, consistently used as, as ammo for the fight via the acorns uh, that, that fall on either side of the fence. People throw acorns back and forth or toss whole bags of oak debris over into Frank's yard at one point. Um, but you have the, the also the difference of, of the, uh, the, 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 the kind of native, the title of the play, the native garden style of gardening where uh, Tanya and, and Frank are diametrically opposed. Uh, Frank uses pesticides and, and, uh, and uh, fertilizers that try to make his, that make his garden the way it is versus Tanya wants to bring in things that are in Frank's mind weeds. In fact, there's a quote right at the top of the play that, that, uh, kind of draws the the comparison there uh but from an unknown source uh but it's the difference between a flower and a weed is a judgment um and and that sort of aspect is is uh lived out in this kind of conflict of gardening types and the morality attached to it too um because as much as they try to be kind initially so their offhand comments and eventually their more aggressive comments lead into that judgment into that morality uh of of each other's worldview and you get a sense of how that just gets caught up in the conflict that they're having over property over the urgency and stakes that's driving their decisions because in that first sort of scene where they all come together and meet and chat about their difference in gardening styles you described that perhaps some of the tension was coming out. I'd be interested to see it played some and played different ways. Cause I actually read this sort of, you know, inside they probably disagree about it. And in their private couples, they may mention how crazy they think the other person is, but ultimately it's just sort of a difference of opinion. And it's, it doesn't feel like it's all that big of a deal. You do it your way. I'll do it my way. We'll be happy neighbors. But once there becomes a driver for getting what they want on so many other things that puts them into conflict, that difference of gardening ethos or, or ethics, I mean, uh, uh, comes into it. And it, it, that gets escalated to the point where that there's really heated kind of crazy language being used about the way in which these people go about gardening. Yeah, yeah, and and then it then it hops the hops the fence, <laughs> then it hops the fence again into uh, the conversation about privilege and who is the conqueror in which scenario. There's a great exchange, just a really great exchange between I think Virginia and Tanya, where they both give their interpretation of how the gardening is influencing them. And I'm not going to be able to find it, so I'm going to paraphrase it poorly, but it's a great scene where where uh, Virginia says, essentially, you're going to come in and rip out our plants and just destroy them. And Tanya says, uh, uh, no, I'm going to uh, take away an occupying force from the land and return it to its native uh, native uh, garden and 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 uh, in indigenous plant life. So you have uh, the the sort of uh, the cultural argument crossing the line into the the physical garden as well. The way it kind of weaves its way in and out of both the 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 values based argument, but also the the physical argument is just really fun to see it kind of uh, develop that way. And I obviously this play has a lot in it about race and privilege and money and these sort of historic neighborhoods and how they treat outsiders and things like that. That's all part of the conversation that is going on. But I just want to commend Karen Zacharias and to point out for other playwrights, especially young playwrights that are sort of developing their writing sense, what she has done that, it, that makes this play so smart in that way is she has muddied the waters. 
Right. She's made this issue much less clear, much less black and white. There's a subtle point of view. There's not this sort of, you know, this biased, easy villainizing sort of world. And she's done that in a number of different ways. One of them is Pablo, you know, though he's now an immigrant into the United States where he's treated very poorly, comes from a, a really privileged, wealthy upbringing. And that causes some discrepancy between he and Tanya. Tanya is, uh, you know, uh, she's from the part of New Mexico that used to be Mexico till the United States bought it, but her family has literally been in the United States as you know once that purchase and the land change was made and stuff for generations and generations. So she doesn't feel like the sort of immigrant outsider, or or she she objects to being treated as the sort of immigrant outsider, despite the fact that Virginia and Frank sort of have that perspective based on her skin color and the way she looked. I love the moment when Pablo sort of brings his law firm into this and. Tanya says, so now we're the big yeah. guys. We're mm-hmm. we're the man, right? We're an institution going after this elderly, you know, almost retired couple uh, who just wants to plant their really nice garden. So she she shifts the power back and forth. She she doesn't make it so clear. Not everything's on every single person's side. There's no easy like you're the big institution, we're the small. It, it, it's it's a complicated, subtle mixing of characters that creates for so much more interesting conflict and dialogue than if she had just made this a play about uh, you know evil, rich, old white people who are just trying to claim something that's not theirs. They're they're. There's no easy victims and there's no easy villains. Yeah, yeah, it's it's there's no absolutes or or like full polarizations, even though they they arrive at polarized by a certain point of the play. Um, but they 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 don't start there certainly, and they don't they don't even live there for the most part. There is this kind of like yeah, genuine genuine muddying of motives. Um, and it's difficult to to figure out where you land, especially like there's there's a couple there's there's scenes where both both uh, sides end up being pretty like you know, just brutal to each other. Um, especially the, the scenes that come to mind are some of the scenes between Frank and Tanya. They kind of go back and forth uh, quite a bit as Tanya's trying to mend the gap. Frank is pretty vitriolic towards her. There's also scenes where Pablo shows up and is just like, this is the law and you just have to deal with it. Um, and I'm going to win. Yeah, you mentioned the scene where he says, I'm going to bring my firm into this and you're just going to lose. Um, and uh, so so you, you both sides get... Uh, get uh, uh, time with their values and seeing that their value is good and both sides get uh, time uh, kind of being the villain or being someone that you're like, ooh, what a, what a, like if you had the presence of mind, probably would have done that differently. Yeah, well, I think you you end up feeling empathy, and and you make you you see the characters on both sides make choices that you understand and choices that you don't understand, <laughs> right? And that are sort of justified by the heightened level of conflict. One other feature of the play that I'd love to talk about is the vignettes that yeah. are between all these scenes. So all the scenes that Jackson described, where the plot advances, in the middle of them are these, they're called these vignettes. And they're these, I think that what they are is probably uh, uh, highly based on the production company and what you want to do with them. They're basically... Um, the set change because the the land the the actual property in the backyards change quite a bit as this property is negotiated back and forth on and so 
using, I, I think what Karen Zacharias has done is used the, the necessary set change and tried to make it part of the story through these vignettes where various land crews come through, surveyors come through, inspectors come through, there's music, they could be, I think they could be fairly stylized, um, and then they all sort of wash into the scene that is following. Yeah, and these characters uh, sometimes hang around and are sometimes witnesses of of the action. There's there's a scene where they're they're actually kind of fought over um, uh, by by the different characters trying to get them to stop working. Um, there's another scene where Virginia gets under uh, Tanya's skin to the extent that she swears at her in Spanish, and and many of the workers who who are there speak Spanish, and all of them kind of react um, as as to uh, what what has happened um, uh, or what she said that Virginia doesn't understand, but she can tell that something something was said about her. Um, so so they kind of serve this this um, almost almost chorus like presence in the play of like this sort of uh, the onlookers of the, of the, of the city um, who are, who are uh, a part of the, are a part of the events, but not necessarily integrated into all of the action. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I love describing them as a chorus, a sort of witness, a sort of representative of the broader community. And there's really two groups that, that come from the community to intrude on this four character play. The first of them are the landscapers. And this is a group of Latinx people that are hired by Pablo and Tanya. And, um, they, they, they're the ones sort of doing all of the changing to the property and the land. And they hang around a lot more, uh, because they're continuing to work on it. And, and Karen Zacharias, to her credit, has sort of written in the stage directions, little nods to different production companies doing different things. Maybe the landscapers are around right now maybe they're not maybe they're hanging out in the front or back maybe Tanya's involved in like giving them some food and drink while they're working maybe she's not so a lot of this is is highly independent depending on who's producing it and what their vision for what's happening is but you have this group which is a broader Latinx community really working class Latinx people who are coming in and who are uh, you know just a different world than Tanya and Pablo who are very successful very wealthy um, you know representatives of a certain kind of group and then there's also like I, what I would call institutional figures. You have a surveyor and an inspector, right? These are uh, representatives of a government, of a power structure that come in to put their stamp of approval and power onto one side or the other. And it shifts back and forth. The surveyor who comes in is certainly on Pablo and Tanya's side. Then the Virginia and Frank get an inspector from the D.C. government basically to put a stop order on the action of the play. So you have both of these groups, sort of a, a working class broader Latinx community that comes in in the form of the landscapers and this representatives of power structures and government that come in to put their stamp of power structure on what's going on. And in that way, it's kind of important for them to be uh, kind of voiceless presences um, because especially I, I like that you kind of have delineated the two. Um, the the I don't know that necessarily the landscapers would be fully voiceless presences, at least some of the 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 uh, images and videos that I've seen of, of like trailers for productions of this play, they like, they show up, they talk, they dance, they, they interact with each other. So, so they, they kind of have a little bit of a voice, very similar to a Greek chorus between scenes where they say these, you know, long rhyming couplet things. And it's like, okay, cool. Nice. Thanks <laughs> chorus. Um, but um, we've just suspended the theater historians uh, <laughs> who are listening to this podcast. <laughs> But the the voicelessness of the surveyor and the building examiner 
are really, I, I think, in, indicative of of the sort of like institutional weight that's out there that doesn't interact on the small scale, that doesn't take into account um, the intricacies of likable people driven to unlikable conflicts um, that just like can be wielded by one party or the other that shows up dispassionately, just delivers sometimes facts, sometimes um, uh, uh, decisions that are questionable, sometimes, uh, but, but, but always kind of delivers dispenses their justice from uh, a position of not knowing uh, the intricacies of the interaction and the people that are uh, affected by what they are called or terming their justice. No, I, I totally agree. Um, so another feature is we just sort of continue working through some of the things that are interesting about the play. The first and last scene of this play are not what I would call psychological realism or just sort of standard comic acting. They're highly presentational. It's really narrative these yeah. two scenes, the first and last scene, as the four characters describe to the audience the, uh, I guess at the beginning you'd call it the the events of meeting each other, the action, their perceptions of each other that lead up to the start of the play. And then at the end, they basically do a description of the denouement rather than live it out in any sort of way. Yeah, it's I, I, I think if I'm reading it right, it kind of necessitates a fourth wall break. Perhaps there's a way that you could do it to like try to keep it in 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 scene but I think yeah, I, don't, the, I don't I can't imagine a way that you would do that yeah yeah I think I think it turns out to the audience and they kind of like describe uh it's almost it, and, it, and in that way it, it kind of again has this feeling of being at a party and hearing your friend tell you a story about their relationship with their neighbors um there's this this kind of like yeah we, we we like there were lots of the kind of last lines of the play are uh there are lots of other ways that this little episode could have played out but it's what we wanted. Um, and they, they, they have this sort of like uh, uh, acknowledgement of how uh, intricate their relationship is and how it could have gone another way. It didn't. We figured it out. Um, but, in, but in that way, they become uh, sort of um, meta storytellers as opposed to just characters. It kind of resists your uh, uh, tendency to kind of just think of them. Oh, they were just like. Uh, stereotypes or characters that that of course they're blown out of proportion because it's a comedy um but they kind of have these two moments of honesty at the start and end yeah I, I gotta be honest i find it a little strange in the context of the whole play um it, it's not something that's worked in throughout the rest of the script like literally it's just the first scene and the last scene that have this sort of presentational storytelling kind of way and it does very much feel like a way of saying this is not the real play this is the stuff you need to know to understand the play this is sort of a description of where things are at the beginning of the show that you need to get to understand the context in, in one sense it, it would be a way uh, to work out having to avoid uh, getting to avoid exposition. You could sort yep. of put it in and uh, lots of playwrights do that, of course. Uh, but, but it doesn't really do that because you, it's still uh, the first couple of scenes of this play still have quite a bit of exposition in them because there's a lot that we need to understand about these characters to be on board with the kind of crazy decisions they start to make as the play gets rolling. So it, it doesn't really serve that purpose. So it, it I'm not sure as I try to think about this play from like a, an audience seat. Um, I'm trying to think about what would it be to live in a, to be in a theater space where the 
characters talk to me and recognize that what's happening is a play to some degree, but then for 80 of the 90 minutes, just totally live in that world of the fourth wall being up, the action being real to them, um, you know, living in that, in that world. And then at the end, they turn back out to me and tell me what happened. Yeah, it is. It's certainly an interesting dynamic. I think, uh, so I, I kind of rolled with the first one a little bit more, but the, the second one was a very juxtaposed for me. And perhaps that's that juxtaposition is what we need after such like a, absurd fight um but but it is very like you you get a very climactic scene that ends in like a a, a birth that is starting to happen and then suddenly you kind of get like flash forward one year and narration about about how we've we've continued uh to to try to interact with each other as a result of this uh this fight and the the arrival of the, of our daughter into the world and me finishing my dissertation you just get a lot of information very quickly in that fourth wall break well and you've you've alluded to a number of times the sort of is it an issue? No, because this play has been very popular. People love it. It's very funny. Uh, I mean, it's it's a great play. But the ending is a little odd. It's a little... <laughs> is it convenient? You described it as a sort of deus machina. Yeah. <laughs> the baby just coming and somehow solving all of the problems is a little convenient let's say i I think i I do think that if i were directing this play i'm not sure that that would be a position i would be in but let's say that i was that that you have to make the moment of the baby coming um just all of a sudden in in the height of their conflict it's more about the decision made to band together to solve this emergency than it is about this just sort of baby solving the problem for them. I think in order, so that's, I think the problem with the the final scene being so presentational is that because the characters aren't acting it, you have to assume that the change to the characters, right? How are they different at the end of the play? This coming together after the comedy, uh, after the conflict that that has driven the comedy, that coming together, I think you want to have happen while the characters are living in the world of the play. And then the denouement is just saying this is what happened as a result of our coming together. And so that I think that baby scene has to be it has to be very clear that there could be a chance that that Virginia and Frank don't 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 help at all. That it, there could be a chance that the conflict drives even Pablo to continue fighting rather than try right? Everything has to hinge on disaster, even while it's coming out that the baby is being born literally in this moment. And then the characters decide to come together instead. And that, I think, has to be what that moment is about as you bring this play to life in order for the next scene where they just describe presentationally all the good things that are happening now not to feel just a hair convenient which i think is earned in the writing there's the the earlier scene uh where virginia and tanya come together and start to apologize but then eventually miss each other again they they kind of start that apology and the sort of step towards each other with an acknowledgement of tanya's pregnancy that she is very pregnant Uh, she kind of needs to put her feet up and virginia offers her some advice and and there's this moment of connection there there's also uh, i think i think you're right on with that last scene of the 
Like, if, if there is that moment of decision, I think that's that's in the writing, too. Virginia is the first one who kind of, like, reaches out and 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 makes makes the decision to go and help her again. So you have that repetition of those two characters coming together around this thing to the point that Virginia turns to Frank at one point during this last scene where she's finally helping Tanya and says, oh, get a grip, Frank, help out here. <laughs> um, and and they, they so so that 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 choice is there to be earned. And I think you're you're right in, in bringing it out that 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 sort of uh, the, the the choice um, happening in the in action scene is an essential part of making sense of that epilogue scene. And it, it, I, I do think the way it's written perhaps makes the play a little more about Frank than than I had originally thought, which is interesting because into the baby being born. Pablo and Virginia sort of get on board with coming together to solve this problem earlier than Frank does. And even into getting towards the end of the scene, Frank is sort of making what could be interpreted as mean quips about the fact that this is going to happen. And eventually he does make a, a big, you know, this is sort of a, a high decision highlighted by a prop by a moment. He takes off his sweater and lays it on the ground for Tanya to lay on. And I think there's a chance in the direction and in the acting and in the staging of that moment to make that a fairly big decision to come together to sacrifice for your neighbor. Um, now that makes it a lot about Frank and I don't know all along whether this play has been a lot about Frank. So I have some questions about that. It'd be interesting to get it on its feet or to watch a number of different productions to see how that ending is staged to justify everyone coming together because the baby coming does solve one of the urgency problems which is maybe why yeah. it feels a little more convenient than even it otherwise would. Because the baby comes, uh, Tanya and Pablo get to cancel their barbecue in a justifiable way so that Pablo's not going to lose face in front of the partners. And so that eliminates one of the urgencies that's been driving them along so far. And if that weren't the case, I think the baby coming would feel a little less problem-solving than it does. But given that, it's like, oh, well, now we don't have to fight about this yard anymore. So the, I think you have to really do the work if you're going to stage this of that how the characters change and how their relationship changes because they have to solve this problem together right now. Everything else, the urgency, the stakes, this is now the new highest urgency and stakes in their life. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are, we are sadly at the end of our time to talk about this podcast. There's so much more to talk about, and and so much of it is is open to the cast and the production crew to like lean on one one part of it or another. So so it would be fun to like go and see this play like six times, and we'd love to be able to to be able to be the people that you talk to about that play when you go and see it six times. Um, and we'd love to keep having this conversation with you out there in Podcastville, as we're now calling it. Wow, at least it's at least made for this. that decision it's just shifted at least now forever <laughs> at least for this episode it's a bill um but we'd love to keep talking about native gardens with you you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about this play with you absolutely if you've liked this conversation or any of our other conversations please tell your family and friends about us they can find us on Podbean, apple podcast google play spotify or YouTube. You can also like our page on Facebook and a link to the new episode appears every Monday for you to click and play. So until next week when we are talking about another of theater's best scripts, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.